That's the theme of our entire series, to cling to what truly matters. Another way of saying that is the title of our series, Back to Basics. It's so easy to forget the basics, isn't it? To forget the fundamentals. I mean, don't you see that in your own marriage if you're married? Um, that it's so easy to go through life, the busyness of life, and before you know it, you, you forget all of the fundamentals of marriage. I mean, number one, keeping Christ at the center, but things like communication, quality time, uh, all of those things go out the window. We've forgotten the basics. Same thing is true in our Christian life. The f- same thing is true in the church. And the book of 1 Corinthians is is so instructive to us as a church regarding what must be our focus, first and foremost, and the book of 1 Corinthians is so instructive for us about those things that so easily take our focus off of the Christ-centered path. So you could say that the book of 1 Corinthians is a manual of sorts for establishing and maintaining a healthy church. 1 Corinthians shows us a blueprint of sorts of what, it, of what that looks like. Now, how many of you like manuals? Anybody? Okay, I see one hand. Uh, for the most part, we don't like manuals, do we? Um, our, our, our property has uh, some big trees in the front. They're, they're, they're uh, maple, right? Or old oak. Okay, I, I'm not a tree guy. Uh, Mike, you know what they are? <laughs> All right, I mean, they're pretty and they're old. I mean, they're kind of the, the typical, like the hollowed out old trees you see. Um, but uh, the one thing I don't like is... is there are just leaves everywhere, and, and, and I, I hate uh, raking leaves. So I bought an electric uh, blower, but also a vacuum, and, and it's back-breaking after doing that for a long time, and you're in ditches. So I thought I'd be smart, and I said, I'm getting a second one so that Rachel can do three-quarters of the work, and I do one-quarter. And uh, I was... Uh, had out the manual. Now, that wasn't hard to put together, but I had Timothy out there reading as I put in the, the, the mixed gas. And I've never, you know, I don't, I don't own, my, the one I have is electric, so I don't have a gas-powered one. So then he's telling me, okay, now put it in, in position one, the throttle, do it like, crank it like ten times, then in position two, five. I was like, this makes no sense. It should just start up like a lawnmower. But it's following a manual, and manuals are annoying. We don't like them, but they're instructive. And 1 Corinthians is a manual of sorts for establishing and maintaining maintaining a healthy church. And also instructive for us as individuals. So before we move on in our series into chapter 4, we left off at the end of chapter 3. Uh, we need to dust off the cobwebs of our minds and do a little bit of review. Uh, this isn't going to be an in-depth re- review. We're going to look at several passages 
throughout the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to do a flyover of sorts of these first three chapters to look at lessons that we must learn and must remember from this first part of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to have a review this week. Um, My parents are actually flying in uh, to Elmira tomorrow, Um, so uh, we're going to be able to visit with them this week. Um, And and next Sunday, uh, my dad's going to be preaching, Um, so we're going to do this review And then in two weeks, we're going to jump back into the series in chapter four. Um, So I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be visiting with them this week. I'm going to be kind of taking the first half of the week off. And then the second half, uh, Rachel and I are going to a a rural pastors and pastors wives conference. This will be the first time we've been away uh, more than like a date um, without the kids, probably like in six years or something. So so it's good to have family that's coming up uh, to be able to watch the kids. So, you know, this will be uh, a conference, uh, you know, be tempted to just skip all the sessions and just uh, enjoy Lancaster, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but we're excited about that. But next week, we'll have another brief pause and we'll get into new uh, material looking ahead in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, in two weeks. But what I want to do this morning is summarize these first three chapters with three central truths that we must hold to as a local church and as individuals within the local church. So we're just going to look at three summarizing truths of of what we've seen already in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 3. So let me pray and we'll jump right in. Father, I pray this morning that you would be at work in our hearts Lord, it's the proclaimed word that changes lives. It's not our own self-initiative, our own uh, stick-to-itness, because Lord, in and of ourselves, uh, through the power of the flesh, uh, we will fail. Change will not last. So Lord, we're in complete dependence upon you this morning. Lord, both to instruct us through the Holy Spirit, Lord, to to promote that gospel fuel in our hearts to move forward. And Lord, for you to preserve us and to empower us each and every day. Lord, would today be an encouragement to our hearts? Would it be instructive? Would it be convicting in the sense of where we have lost sight of Christ? But convicting in a sense of moving forward and, being, and knowing that your grace is there for us. Lord, we just ask you to be at work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Truth number one that I want to share with you this morning that we have seen in the first three uh, chapters of, of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel must be fundamental to our lives and to our church. This is not rocket science. This is not something that you do not know. But oh, is it something that we struggle with each and every day. The gospel is the proclaimed message of all that Jesus has done for us. His death, burial, and resurrection on behalf of sinners. And it is that message that we have embraced. And it is that message that we have to cling to 
each and every day of our lives. The gospel has to be fundamental to our lives and to our church. What does the gospel provide for us as Christians? Roger read verses 1 to 9 of chapter 1 in our scripture reading time. And I want to look at that passage in a little bit more detail because the gospel has to be fundamental to our lives and to our church because it is through the gospel that we have an established identity. It is through the gospel, the message of the gospel, that, that assures us, even when we sin and fail, that we are God's. That it is the cross of Christ and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf that makes us secure. It is not our own efforts. It is not our own doings that, that somehow brings security to our lives. Our identity is established through the gospel, but you know how often we fall into the trap of identity amnesia. There's a lot that we can put our identity in that's outside of Christ. What people think of us, what we think of ourselves, what um, this world may say of believers, which, we're, which we'll look at this morning. Is your identity tied to what the gospel says. As we look at, at verses 1 to 9, uh, really quickly, uh, follow along with me. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our, what's characterized of the Christian's identity? I want to stop right here at these first three verses that the first key term that we see is the word sanctified. If we are in Christ, if we are believers, we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that word sanctified mean? That means that we have been set apart. What Paul is reminding the church of Corinth is that by God's own doing, not of your own doing, but by God's doing, you have been set apart to himself been set apart from the world and God has made you His. As we've already seen in chapters 1 to 3, and, and it really goes downhill from there, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. Isn't it telling that Paul begins by reminding this church where their identity needs to be found? You are not of the world, church of Corinth. You have been set apart to God. Your lives need to reflect that. Boy, do we need that reminder, don't we? But then we keep reading in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge. What's one of the 
big problems the church in Corinth has. They are wanting these glamorous gifts. And Paul tells them right from the very beginning, you've already been given everything you need in Christ. But then it goes on and says, even as the testimony, verse 6, about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second key description of our identity that we have received because we are now in Christ Jesus. If, if we have repented of our sins, we've turned to faith in Christ. If we are believers this morning, not only have we been sanctified, but our identity is that we have been equipped. We have been equipped to serve Christ. Verse 7 says, so you are not lacking in any gift. Boy, so many times don't we say, oh, if I just had that gift, then I wouldn't be too embarrassed to step out and to share my faith. Or if I just had that gift, then I would have a place in the local church. If I just was able to do this or that, how much better I could serve the Lord. And that's just not biblical. Christ has equipped everyone with unique gifts that we don't have to covet another person's gift. We have been wired and equipped to serve Christ the way He has designed for us as individuals. And every body part working together completes the whole body. We've been equipped. And because we have been equipped, our focus is no longer on ourselves, but verse 7 says, we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be, we are to be looking to that day and living in light of that day as Christians. We are to be serving Him, looking for that day. We are to be making our daily decisions in life, in light of that day. Knowing that these things that we get so preoccupied about in this life will not last. You see, brother, you see, sister, you have been equipped. Not to live for yourself. Not to live for temporal things that will pass away, but to live for Christ. And then we keep reading in verse 8. Jesus Christ, the one whom we're waiting to return, it says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what the third description here that Paul gives concerning our identity? Believers are those who are sanctified. They're set apart to God. They've been equipped to, to serve and to traverse this life no matter what hardships. But we can be described that we are held fast by God Himself. Verse 8 says that God will sustain us to the end. 
God will sustain us. We are held fast. What is the end story for a Christian? The end story, verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember all of the problems that I just talked about um, that the church of Corinth had? It is amazing for Paul to be able to say, you are guiltless in light of the coming day. That even amidst a church with all kinds of problems like Corinth, God was going to work through that church, refine that church, and on the day he returns, they would be a spotless bride. Wow, what an encouragement to this church. Maybe your personality, maybe your struggle in life, maybe um, it is that you see where you fail, where you fall, and you get so discouraged and you say, what is the use to serve Christ? Maybe your eyes need to be turned away from yourself and to your Savior. That God is doing a work. If you are truly a Christian, God is doing a work. He promises not to abandon you. And He is doing a work of perfection. This was to be an encouragement, a wake-up call to the Corinthian church. Remember your identity. And he doesn't put this just to the back of the book. He doesn't put this in the middle of the book. He puts it at the beginning of the book. And then he keeps drawing the Corinthians' attention back. Today, have you lost sight of the wonderful good news of the gospel message of what Jesus has accomplished for you and that He is doing that work. He did the immediate work of salvation when you believed in, on Him. That He cleansed you of your sin and now He's doing that progressive work of salvation, of refining you and, and God is making you more like Christ and that work will continue until the day of eternity. We can have hope. In fact, the gospel is fundamental to our lives and to our church, not because we must continually remember our established identity, but because the gospel is what indeed does give us a firm hope. If you jump over to chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. How many of you would raise your hand and say, you know what? I am wise according to worldly standards. I am powerful. I am of noble birth. There are some in Christ's church that, that are, praise God. But the majority are not. Look, but verse 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And why is all of this? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast who? And who? The Lord. You see, our calling to God Himself is not based on anything that we can bring to the table. It's not based on what our standing is in society. It is not based on how much money we have. It is not based on our business. It is not based on our families. It is not based on any of those things. It is entirely based upon a crucified Messiah. Upon the grace of God that has been extended to us through that crucified and risen Messiah. And guess what? That crucified, risen Messiah is foolishness to the world. Can I ask you? When the Bible says, um, in, 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 when the Bible says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world. Are you willing to be considered a fool for Christ? Are you willing to be considered a fool in your workplace? Are you willing to be considered a fool in your high school? In your college? In your elementary school? Are you willing to be considered a fool to your family? For Christ? That is living out our identity. Our identity is not an empty boasting of this is who I am. No, our identity is thank God that He is for me what I cannot be. And I look to Him and I say no to this world in light of my Savior. That is true hope. That we are willing because we so realize the hope that we have in Jesus that we are willing to be a fool in the eyes of this world. At the end of this passage that we just looked at, verse 30 says, it's because of Him, it's because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. In other words, we have all of these things from start to finish, We have the wisdom of God, which is God has revealed the true wisdom of a crucified yet risen Messiah to us while he has hid it from the eyes of the world. And we have been enabled to place our faith in him. From the wisdom of God all the way to redemption. That's a term you're going to look at in your small group this week. That we have been bought back from the slave market of sin. And uh, this grocery list of blessings means that everything that we have, that we need, is in Christ. It says nothing about how much your paycheck must be. It says nothing about how many vehicles you must drive or what society thinks about you or what maybe someone else even close to you may think. Everything that you need is in Christ. You see, the gospel gives us a firm hope. But thirdly, the gospel gives us a strong focus. 
You see, this strong focus is to keep us from distraction because there are so many things in this world and in our sinful flesh that distracts us from the gospel. If you notice in chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we're going to talk about this in our second point, so I'm not going to park here. But there were distractions that were coming upon the local church. Baptism is important. It's the mark of a true believer. But yet, there, even what is good became a distraction to the church. The things that the world prioritizes, like words of eloquent wisdom, became a priority. The church was forgetting the cross of Christ that Paul mentions, and they were putting lesser things in its place. Boy, can't we do that in our lives? Can't we start to put, yeah, but we got this to-do list, so let's start to put as a lesser place God in our life. Let's start to hemorrhage on our time with God. Let's start to hemorrhage on our gathering together of God's people in the local assembly. Let's start to hemorrhage on on all of these things, spiritual disciplines, let's start to hemorrhage on, on having accountability in our lives, people that we know are praying for us and that we can be uh, sharing requests with. In our church, isn't it so easy to start replacing the cross of Christ with events and activities and this, and this, and we can be content that, boy, for every age group we offer something, yet we're missing out on the cross of Christ. It's so easy to do individually and as a church. In fact, verses 22 to 25, what appeals to our flesh, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But boy, this verse is like an oasis in a desert. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is all about Jesus. Jesus in my life, Jesus in this church, and our being stewards for Him. So lesson number one this morning, the gospel has to be fundamental to our lives and to our church. Coming right off of that, lesson number two, again, this isn't rocket science, but boy, is it a reminder that I need in my life, and I think we all do, the gospel cannot have second place. Whatever is foundational always is in danger of taking second place. I've shared this illustration uh, years ago, but um, since I talk a lot up here, hopefully you've forgotten it. I'm going to share it again. 
Uh, I played basketball in high school. Um, not that I was some star athlete. I know Silas Thompson shared his testimony that, uh, you know, he, he was on track to get a college scholarship and he, um, he gave it away for, for the kingdom of Christ to pursue missions. Uh, well, no one was looking at me for a scholarship. Um, you know, I, would, I, would, I was there. I, I got to play, but I wasn't the star. Nothing like that. Um, but, but I remember graduating... And our coach was a really good coach, um, focused on fundamentals, um, had, had specific plays that we all had to learn, uh, uh, defensive strategies, the whole nine yards. Well, he, he, he stopped coaching shortly um, after I graduated, and I like to say it's because I graduated, there's nothing more to accomplish, but um, that wasn't the case either. Um, but I remember at the college I attended, um, it, it would have been my sophomore year, so two years after I graduated, the basketball team came up to my college um, because they were involved in a tournament. And they were, um, they were a good team. They had a lot of raw talent. Um, and I remember being in the lobby of, of the dorm, and some of them were staying in, in my dorm um, that I stayed in, and I was talking with some of the guys. I was like, and I watched one of their games. I was like, you guys are really good. Um, you got a good team, and they won that game. And, uh, um, uh, but I said, I noticed watching the game, I didn't really see you guys calling out any plays or anything. Like, do you guys have, have a playbook? Do you guys have plays you're working through in practice? And again, this was a newer, uh, a different coach. And they, they almost proudly said, no, 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 we, we don't do plays. We don't, we don't have plays. We, we just kind of go with it, you know. So I was like, oh, kind of like street ball then. And it was like, yeah, pretty much. And, and they said it rather confidently, and I was just like, huh, that's interesting. And you know what happened? When they played a good team in that tournament, guess who lost? It, it was a school I graduated from. And, and, and the, the other team clearly dominated because when they were up against another team that was a quality team, that had plays, that had strategy. The whole let's just free-for-all and let's just go on raw talent, it went kaput. You see, fundamentals took a second place on that team. And all of the things that, that is textbook things for a good team to be doing, to have... To, to work on the fundamentals, to be having set plays, to be having set defensive strategies, all of those things, they took second place. And at the end of the day, they didn't get the trophy. You know, I think in our Christian life, and many times in America, where, uh, yes, we're starting to see some, some hardship, some oppression, a little bit socially, um, we, as American Christians are a lot like that basketball team. You know what? We don't really need the fundamentals because I'm doing pretty good with what I'm doing. I'm kind of I'm streetballing it, so to speak. But you know what happens when we get caught in a corner and Satan presents something our way that is a pretty big deal? We fall flat on our face, and I don't mean in prayer, because we 
have allowed the fundamentals to take second place. When there's areas of discernment, and you're not in God's Word, and you're not walking in relationship with Him, how are you going to have the discernment to work through that situation? When there's a temptation, and man, it's a heavy temptation, and you are not connected to Christ in a, in a daily relationship, abiding John 15 sort of way, how are you going to overcome that temptation? We are so prone to have that which is fundamental take second place. Well, just in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, we see two ways, two outworkings of the gospel taking second place in, this church, in their church, in the church in Corinth. Number one was disunity. Disunity. After Paul gives them the truth of who they are in Christ in verses 1 to 9, notice what he says in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now let's just stop there. What Paul is not saying is that there has to be um, everyone thinking the exact same way. Or cookie-cutter people that, that everybody has the same personality, everybody like robots are saying the same thing. No, what Paul is saying is that there is to be a church unity that, that the church is united in the same mind and the same judgment regarding the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Christ, who Paul repeatedly says, we preach Christ crucified, and anything that takes priority over that, it's a problem. Anything that distracts from that and the true unity that's found in truth, there's a problem. Many churches can be unified on a lot of different things. They can be unified on personalities, on, on, on decisions. They can be unified on, on, um, on philosophies, on, any, on a lot of different things. But if we, our unity is not grounded in Scripture, on truth, it's not true unity. Well, let's look at, at what the problem was. Verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Boy, can't you see Paul's heart there in verse 11? I mean, first of all, it's hard to self-diagnose ourselves, right? Um, Paul did not hear from anyone in Corinth that there's quarreling, that there's disunity. Paul heard it from a fellow sister in Christ that saw more clearly the situation than that church could see. But look at Paul's love. He says, he says, my brothers, this is being reported. And he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. 
Jump down to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, what we see that there was disunity because people, personality became central over truth. Uh, Paul is not saying, church, you should not have been baptized. No, that, 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 is a, that is a part of what we see that there's repentance, faith in Christ, and, and, and that is evidenced through baptism. So Paul's not saying that, that baptism is not important, but Paul is saying even something as important as baptism cannot get in the way of the core truth that Christ has saved us to bring us together. And, 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 and we are not to be followers of men, but followers of Christ. That it doesn't matter the, pe- the person, the personality, um, whatever the case may be, our unity, excuse me, our unity is found in truth. Folks, many a church, the result of disunity is the, the end of verse 17, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How important true unity is. When the gospel takes second place, there becomes disunity. Chapter 3, if you jump over to chapter 3, we see the heart, we see the, 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 the mindset that these Christians were struggling with. Paul says, I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In verse 3, you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Or in other words, merely characterized by the flesh. Paul's saying, this isn't what is to be true of true believers, church. This type of of, of jealousy and strife is characteristic of unbelievers. So at very best, you are an infant in Christ, he tells these individuals. And at worst, you are not a believer. What a wake-up call to us. We who follow Christ, let our lives be characterized by Christ. Amen? But then another problem, and my time is almost gone, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. Not only disunity, but another problem we see just in the first three chapters is worldly pride and wisdom. That somehow the gospel took second place, and what took priority was their own pride their own wisdom, and their seeking after the wisdom of this world. Let me direct your attention to chapter 1 and verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except 
And here's that foundation, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you. Note, this is the, whole, this is the complete opposite of what the world would classify as power and wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Folks, the wisdom of this world will not stand. The pride that so characterizes this world will not stand. So let us not stand in that wisdom and pride. Let us not be characterized by this. A a life that is truly focused on Jesus and all that He has provided for us, our our sanctification, our redemption, all of these things, the daily grace we need to live life. Let us look to Him in His Word for wisdom. And when when our eyes are looking to Him, we find the chisel of God's refinement through His Word, through our daily relationship with Him, through the things He allows us us to go through, constantly refining those sharp edges. And we all got them. We're all walking around like porcupines, right? Poking each other sometimes. (laughs) But God is at work. Let's look to Him to complete what only he can do. Last lesson. We've seen that the gospel is fundamental to our lives and to our church. We've seen that the gospel cannot have second place. Last point this morning. The gospel is what builds the church. It's not a pastor or pastors or elders or deacons that, that build a church. Churches can grow numerically, but the Scriptures never put a higher emphasis on numbers than than spiritual growth. There's a lot of things that can build a church, but is it the Gospel? Is it proclaiming the Gospel outside of these walls? Is it living the Gospel You see, the gospel is to be the foundation, once again, of our church. We've looked a lot at chapter 1. We've looked at some past, uh, uh, a little bit at chapter 2. I want, as we close, to end our uh, our time together in chapter 3. And I want to read verse 10. Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. God stewarded Paul with the message of the gospel to go into the, the, the world to proclaim the gospel, and upon that foundation of the gospel, churches were established. Paul would establish leaders in that local church. 
Uh, He would go on to other churches and he would then entrust that upon that foundation of the gospel that there would be care upon how one builds upon it. And that's why we read in Acts that Paul also goes and he revisits churches. And he's going to revisit Corinth um, to, to help what is lacking But the gospel is our foundation. The whole reason we're all together in this room, it's not because we somehow met each other at Walmart, right? It's not because we're all business associates or that we work in the same factory together or that we're even, we met at a social gathering, at a party together. That's not why we're here. Or that we all drive the same vehicle and we're in the Jeep club. The reason we are here is because Jesus has has saved us. And were it not for the gospel, we probably would not know each other. Our church, the church universal and the church local, are both founded on what Jesus has done. So how can we then lose that for lesser things? You see, the gospel is what builds the church. It is our foundation. But guess what? The gospel provides the right building materials on how we are to build upon this foundation. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we can't can't go back to the drawing board and reinvent the wheel. There's no other foundation than Jesus Christ who He is, what He has done. Now, verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What's important to realize here, and we talked about this when we we went through 1 Corinthians 3, many times, and there is some application, there's application we can make to our individual lives. What are we building in our lives? But what Paul is specifically speaking of here is corporately the church. That the gospel has been laid... So what is being built upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, is it that which will last or that which will fade away? What we really see here is a great responsibility, number one, on church leadership. That the church leadership is seeking to guide the church in the ways of Christ. That we are not building upon things like wood, hay, straw that will fade away. Such things will be revealed by fire on the last day. What we have to focus on is are we keeping the the main thing the main thing? That which is about Christ and what He has done. Are we evaluating, is Christ becoming small in my life? Is Christ becoming small in the church? Are other things taking precedence? All of these things we are stewards for. 
But then we see another aspect of the gospel is what builds the church. That number three, the gospel, or the third uh, idea behind this is that the gospel preserves the church in truth. The gospel is what forms the church, and the gospel is what preserves the church. And it preserves the church in truth. Now, in verses 11 through 15, Paul is specifically talking about church leaders that may be in danger of building upon things that will not last. And I mean, you can fill in the blank of of those type things. We don't have time to discuss them all. It could be entertainment. It could be, like we talked about, just simply events for the sake of events. Or it could be whatever. It could be even um, just things that are good, like we saw in chapter 1, but yet detracting. But these are believing leaders that will have to give an account in verse 15, even their, work, their works may be burned away, that this was not centered on Christ. But they will be saved, but only as through fire. Here we see a steward, and Paul refers to himself as a steward earlier, but it's an unfaithful steward. And then you jump to verse 16 and 17, and you see a different type of person that is actually trying to destroy the church. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Again, this is, it is true, and Paul will later talk about our bodies are the temple of God. Um, but specifically, this is talking about the church. God, we, as a corporate body, as local churches throughout the world, corporate bodies, God's Spirit dwells in the church, corporately gathered together. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the gospel preserves the church in truth. You see, the church in Corinth, they were in danger of veering off by people that were discrediting uh, Paul's ministry um, and putting things above the gospel. And the church is called upon to be building upon the right foundation, the leaders to build upon the right foundation, and we see that God preserves His church in truth. How important is the gospel to the church? How important is the gospel to your life? The gospel is fundamental. It's where we begin. It's where we must remain. The gospel cannot have second place. And we must remember, as leadership in the church, as members in the church, all of us, that the gospel is what builds the church. In summary, we must cling to what truly matters.